You know, Miles, as much as we joke that it's always Inferno here, Age of Apocalypse is really the event that's just going to keep on giving forever. If you're into X-Man, I guess. Sure. Oh, I'm not just talking about Nate Gray. Or even Universe Refugees in general, although they do keep turning up. Wait, who else ended up in the 616? Well, Sugar Man and Dark Beast pretty much immediately. But stragglers have been popping up pretty regularly ever since. I think the last big batch was back in Remender's Uncanny X-Force when Age of Apocalypse Nightcrawler was tracking down a bunch of fugitives from that timeline. Oh yeah, I think I remember that. Uh, Iceman had gone evil, right? You're gonna need to be a bit more specific, man. I mean, a lot of Icemans have gone evil. Uh, the one from Age of Apocalypse. Right, yeah. Um, well, he and Nightcrawler had been really tight. I mean, Iceman had started out as one of the core good guys, but at some point he basically broke his conscience in a bad fall. Huh. So yeah, Iceman went evil and he ended up hiding out in the 616 and Nightcrawler followed and killed him. Oh, along with Age of Apocalypse Blob. How did Nightcrawler manage that? Which one? Let's start with Iceman. Threw him into a furnace. Yeah, okay, that'd do it. What about Blob? Creative use of teleportation. What, did he teleport Blob into a wall or something? Nah, nothing so inelegant. He teleported a shark into Blob. What? I'm Jay Edidon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 183 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And I think we are back with uh, adjectiveless X-Men this week. Indeed, I keep going back and forth on whether to call it adjectiveless X-Men, which is what I usually call it informally, or X-Men Volume 2, which is, I guess, what it's officially supposed to be called. I don't know. We could just call it X-Men, but that's very confusing. So I actually really dislike using volume when you're talking about series numbering because most series have been collected into multiple volumes. Oh, yeah. So what, what do you say then? X-Men Volume 2, Volume 3? Um, yes. So I would say X-Men Series 2, but honestly... Since there's never actually been a series titled Adjectiveless X-Men, and since X-Men is also the name of the team, throwing that in to make it clear that we're talking about the book seems like a good plan to me. Okay, Jay, we should make a pact, all right? So if either of us ever writes an X-Men book for Marvel, like an official X-Men book, we need to officially title it Adjectiveless X-Men. I'm pretty sure that they don't usually let writers title their own books. Maybe they would make an exception. I mean, we're experts. We are podcasters, the most elite of all media personalities. Here's the problem with adjectiveless in an actual title, though. There's no way to work an X into it. Adjectiveless. It would be great. Speaking of great things, we are going to be at Emerald City Comic Con, which is now coming up very, very fast. Um, I think it's, it's about a month out when, or will be when this episode goes live. You should come see us. We're going to be doing a live show. We'll also be tabling all weekend and throwing a party. Details about that as they come. We're recording two weeks out now, so I assume that by the time this goes up, we'll have the solid details on both of those, or at least we'd better. I have lost all sense of time. I haven't left this studio in, in what feels like years. I, I don't even know my name. Was this beard this big when I got in here? I have no idea. You know, you're going in an appropriate direction for this week's episode, which is in fact all about memory loss and repressed memories since it is Wolverine-centric. That's true, but before we get to that, so I am uh, way behind where you are on The Gifted. I'm finally starting to catch up, and I just got to episode eight, which is, I guess, roughly the midpoint of the season. And goddamn, it went from a show I, I was, you know, enjoying, but was sort of a guilty pleasure in some ways, 
to a show that suddenly I am incredibly invested in. They brought in all the convoluted backstory and all the intense tragedy and all the soap opera stuff and one of the coolest fight scenes I've ever seen on television, even if it was really quick. Like, wow, people who make The Gifted, like, well fucking done. Oh, dude, wait till... So, Matt, I'm going to say a long string of things. If you could beep out everything that's actually relevant, I would appreciate it here. Wait till the show up. They are They are They are everything you have wanted to see in them. They're But other than that, they are just pitch perfect, precise, amazing, and marvelous. And like so many other weird little continuity bits end up getting thrown in. And... And then... And seriously, you gotta finish. Well, goddamn. Yes, I do. Anyway... Uh, X-Men TV shows aside, let's talk about X-Men comic books. So this is an interesting arc for a couple of reasons. We're going to be covering Adjectiveless X-Men Volume 2, that's even less accurate, number 4 through 7 today. This is the Omega Red introductory story, and this arc marks probably the first issue of X-Men that was actually mine. I believe, if I remember correctly, that was X-Men number 6, and I got it in an Easter basket. And I started buying my own comics relatively shortly after that. I was so goddamn confused, but also intrigued and excited. First of all, that's adorable. Second of all, I feel like Omega Red is weirdly on point for a resurrection-themed holiday. I guess that's really a good point. I mean, Omega Red, so he he died, he was killed by his enemies, and his people mourned him, and then the carbonadium uh, circular door of the lab in which he was entombed rolled away, and he went around and used his mutant death factor to kill a lot of people. That's pretty much how that goes, right? Well, you just said that. And it's canon. Okay, well, actually even less so than usual. But still, another reason this arc is interesting is that we see yet another creative transition. Now, we've talked a lot about how at this point in Marvel publishing history, things were kind of in chaos. Chris Claremont and Louise Simonson had been forced away because editorial was giving more and more say to the artists. And so we were left with the artists plotting, and in the case of both Uncanny X-Men and X-Men, John Byrne, a previous prominent X-Men artist and frequent Marvel writer, scripting. And we're going to see him leave that role, at least on this series, midway through the arc we're discussing today, partly due to that imbalance of creative power on the titles. I actually found this quote from John Byrne from Comic Creators and X-Men about what was going on that I gotta say helps explain especially some of the complaints we had about our last Uncanny X-Men arc that we covered. Byrne says, The problem was the books were terminally late when I was asked to script them. Jim, Lee, and Will Sportasio would, would both send me the plot, and then they'd send me three pages of pencils. I'd script those because they had to be scripted right away and faxed the scripts directly to Tom Orzakowski, who was lettering the book. I bought my first fax machine working with those guys. Then I'd get one more, and the one page didn't match the first three pages because they'd taken off on a tangent, and they were both doing this. So I was constantly rewriting and rewriting and writing. It was just a nightmare. It's a very sitcom situation. It is, but I think it also really highlights just the utter chaos going on at Marvel. And things will eventually settle down. We're going to see Scott Lobdell and Fabian Yassieza be writing pretty much everything for a while, and I think the book's quality improves there. But I gotta say, some of the criticisms we had of John Byrne's scripting, I kind of feel like we should take those, some of those back or at least put in a big old grain of salt because I don't think anybody could have done a very good job scripting under those circumstances. That's assuming that we're grading on an effort scale, which I'm reluctant to do in published works. There may be reasons that they aren't very good, but they aren't very good. 
That's fair. Although I gotta say, I think the work that uh, John Byrne does on adjectiveless X-Men is a hell of a lot better than what we saw in Uncanny. I actually quite enjoyed what he did here. Oh, agreed wholeheartedly. I don't think I would have pinged this as the same writer necessarily unless I knew, actually. And, <laughs> man, speaking of, of things that are in here that have antecedents or, or versions and other stuff, you mentioned you've been watching The Gifted. Have, did, remind me, has Fenris shown up yet? They just did, and I don't want to say anything else about that for listeners who haven't seen the show, but that was when I started going, holy shit, are they, are they? And then the show got really interesting. Yeah, I'm I'm still a little bummed that we don't quite get comics Fenris on screen because, God, they're so amazingly, hor- they're just delightfully terrible. All the upstarts are really like I kind of enjoy them as villains just because they have zero redeeming qualities. Well, thankfully, we get to see not only Matsuo from the upstarts, but also Fenris themselves in this episode. Speaking of the content of this episode and where it comes from, we've got a whole lot of previously on X-Men for you. After the Muir Island saga, the X-Men have been reunited under Professor Xavier and are now operating out of the newly rebuilt, once again, X-Mansion. But there are so many X-Men that they're now divided into a pair of teams. This book, Adjectiveless, Volume 2, whatever, is about the blue team, which is Cyclops, Wolverine, Rogue, Gambit, Psylocke, Beast, and very suddenly, with no explanation, now Jubilee. There's a brief explanation. I mean, she shows up, anyway. In his solo book, Wolverine just found out that the Weapon X project repressed many of his real memories and also created a bunch of new fake ones. We also found out that he used to work with Sabretooth, his nemesis, who was another Weapon X subject, as a black ops agent when they were working for the CIA. That was, of course, covered in The Shiva Scenario, one of the very few Wolverine series stories that we've covered. Now, we mentioned a group called the Upstarts. These are a group of mutants who are young and very wealthy and all total assholes, and they have gotten together in an ambiguous and deadly game where they basically hunt powerful and established mutants for, for sport under the supervision of a shady dude called the Game Master who is working with everyone's favorite not-quite-a-vampire, Selene. Exactly. Among the upstarts are the aforementioned incestuous Nazi rich asshole twins, Fenris. And the current leader of the Hand Ninja Clan, which goes through leaders very, very fast, Matsuo Tsuriaba, whom you might remember as the guy who transformed Psylocke into an ambiguously Asian ninja assassin. So, all of that out of the way, we'll dive into X-Men number four, The Resurrection and the Flesh, which I gotta say is a really fun issue. The more portentous the titles get, the more I imagine them as, like, Tiny Toons title cards. That would be amazing. Do you remember in Batman the Animated Series how, like, every episode had a super artsy kind of title card with a different font and, like, little symbols of whoever the villain was? I really liked that. Okay, literally everything about that show was beautiful and perfect. It was so good. And it was on at the same time as X-Men the Animated Series, which, don't get me wrong, I have a lot of love for X-Men the Animated Series, but X-Men didn't stand up very well in comparison. It's like one of them was still chugging along with punch cards and the other one had already figured out Wi-Fi. Pretty much that, yeah. Uh, So speaking not at all of punch cards and Wi-Fi, we open on a secret island in the South Pacific, which I guess maybe has some punch cards somewhere, as 20 Red Clan ninjas, easily recognizable as the Hand, sacrificed their lives, and five nearby scientists also sacrificed their lives, but, like, they didn't mean to, in order to resurrect a naked Pale Man. Ooh, I know this one. Is that Rachel Ghoul? 
Uh, no, no, no. Although that just makes me wish it was because once again, Batman the Animated Series, I love Rachel Gould on that show. This right here is a dude named Omega Red. But I want to talk a little bit before we get to who he is about the way the scene is shot because I think Jim Lee does a pretty good job here with the art. The ninja sacrifice is described by Burns' narration as a laying on of hands. And it does look pretty ritualistic, almost gentle, as all these ninjas put their hands over the guy like as some kind of a funeral shroud or something as they wake him up and as they all get incinerated, basically. Well, they're hand ninjas. They'll presumably come back. Even so, I like the, uh, like, religious iconography here. It's, it's kind of cool. But this dude, this naked pale man, he's got long blonde hair, red eyes, and bits of Portacio-esque technology all over him. This is a dude, we, like we mentioned, who's named Omega Red, and Matsuo Tsurayaba, the head of the hand, has done what the hand often does, aside from dying a whole lot, and has brought Omega Red back to life. So, Omega Red is a Russian dude named Arkady. He has carbonadium implants. Um, carbonadium is, is, is a metal that's sort of similar to adamantium. It's highly radioactive. It's gradually killing him in combination with his mutant power, which is described repeatedly and hilariously as a mutant death factor. Mutant Death Factor not only is the name of my terrible cover band, but is also one of the more 90s descriptors you could have for anything. It doesn't necessarily mean anything, but it sounds really impressive. Now, Omega Red, like literally every single other dime a dozen villain of this era, subsists on other people's life energy. That's his thing. But he's also basically like a gauntlet character. He is continually bleeding hit points, and he has to regularly re-up, or he will eventually end up dying. Red Omega needs life force badly. Red Omega is about to die. Guess you shouldn't have shot that food, huh, Red Omega? Seriously. So here's the thing with Omega Red. Here's I should say another thing with Omega Red, because there are a lot of things with Omega Red. He's really boring. I mean, we have some villains introduced in this era, like, say, Trevor Fitzroy or Shinobi Shaw, who may be terrible, but they're also really entertaining. Omega Red is not. He's just a cool character design with some political implications that are never explored all that heavily, and that's basically it. Remender is going to do some slightly interesting-ish things with him in Uncanny X-Force, but... Again, those are mostly going to be Omega Red derivative, not actually Omega Red. He also figures very prominently in X-Men 92 and fairly delightfully there. Yes, that's actually my favorite version of Omega Red. You know, I've got a theory about why we don't like him as much as, as Fitzroy or Shinobi Shaw, and that is that Omega Red is a dude who comes with a default outfit. Fitzroy and Shaw are awful, but they have amazing fashion sense. Like, that's their thing. Oh yeah, Red's just got that kind of red and white techno jumpsuit. I mean, it's a cool costume, but it's just sort of like a supervillain costume. Like, that's what it does. That's the section you buy it at, at Target. The way he's drawn and the way his clothes are drawn remind me of an action figure where everything's just molded or painted on. To be fair, Omega Red had a really cool action figure. Oh, I know. Matsuo has resurrected Omega Red not to teach him how to dress better, but to send him after a specific quarry. And to that end, um... He shows Omega Red a picture. It's a photograph of, of Logan uh, lounging around in a cowboy hat. Wait a minute. I think we've seen that picture before. Did Matsuo steal that photo from Nightcrawler? You know, back in Uncanny X-Men Annual Number 4 with Nightcrawler's birthday? That was a birthday present. Matsuo, you're so evil. No, no, no. Clearly, clearly those were Wolverine's school photos. And he got one of those packets with like way more prints than you're ever going to use. 
Oh yeah, like all in different sizes and stuff? Okay, so there are like a, a bunch of those little tiny ones, the wallet-sized ones that nobody ever really cared about, just scattered around the X-Mansion and also all over Canada? No, Gambit's already blown all of those up. <laughs> That's actually a really charming concept. Thank like, you. Genuinely. I like that. Okay. Personal canon, go. Speaking of Gambit, he and Wolverine and Jubilee and Rogue are at the X-Mansion playing basketball. That's right, the X-Men have some free time, and it's the 90s now, and basketball is way more badass. Well, it's also easier to play with four people. That is perhaps a very good point. Can you tell I'm not a sports person? I just knew the bingo, bango, bongo thing, and that was it. Speaking of, thank you to the listener who explained that to me. Now I understand what a 543 whatever it was was. I just can't remember the name very well. Fortunately, you don't need to know anything about basketball to understand what's going on here, which is that they're all cheating, and it's hilarious, and Jubilee and Gambit are playing against Wolverine and Rogue. Everyone eventually gets mad and uses their powers, as they do in these games, and it just sort of ruins everything. Two things, both of which are about Gambit, actually. Number one, this is one of the first times we've seen Gambit outside of his superhero costume, outside of, you know, that pink breastplate and trench coat and stuff like that, which means he's outside of that head sock thing he wears, and we see that he has, like, a waist-length ponytail. As somebody with long hair, I gotta say, if I tried to cram all my hair under something that tight, it would kind of mess with my mobility. So maybe that's just another reason why Gambit is doing thieving on hard mode, because he can never fully move his neck without pulling his own hair. Well, your hair is very, very thick. It's also possible that he's got it somehow like wrapped up and around in, in some kind of elaborate Leia-style hairdo under the buttresses. That's surprisingly easy to picture, and I really hope that's true. But the other thing about Gambit in this scene is that as everybody is cheating and using their powers, one of the ways that starts is that Rogue mentions that Gambit is using his mutant agility powers. Gambit has a habit of having the things that are just sort of him be attributed randomly to being mutant powers. We see his charm attributed to being a power at various points. We see his agility here. I don't know if I like that or not. On the one hand, Gambit is, like, way too good at everything, so having it be a power makes it make a little more sense, but eh. I love that, because what it heavily implies is that that's the only reason anyone likes Gambit, which makes sense based on the way he behaves. Like, he's awful, but everyone adores him. And clearly there is something superhuman at work, because if he were just a regular guy, he'd, he'd have been out of the mansion weeks ago. That's actually a really good point. Well, in a part of the mansion where people are being less happy and less go lucky, we now turn to Dr. Moira McTaggart. She's having a terrible dream, I guess it must be night now, of trying to save her son Kevin, who's hanging off a cliff, and then turns into Magneto, who pulls her down, and they fall. And I love the visual layout here. Like, Jim Lee, I mean, we may have some issues with the way he does some things, but he can do some cool fucking panels, or series of panels, and this is one such series. There are these multiple vertical panels all next to each other, with Moira's screaming face in the background over each sequential bit of the scene going from left to right. It's kind of awesome, and she wakes up screaming. Yeah, so she's with Banshee, but he can't comfort her because his jaw is wired shut, and I guess neither of them really writes or, or reads. I mean, they'd have to spell things out in the accents, and it would, just, it would just be nearly impossible, I guess. But luckily for them, Professor Xavier happens to um, eavesdrop telepathically on all of his students' sex lives, so he comes bursting in. I gotta say, this seems like a bad plan specifically with Banshee and Moira. Like, I know Xavier has seen a lot of shit in his life. That's totally valid. He's a telepath. He would have to. But they are especially freaky lovers. I think we can safely assume they would blow his fragile mind. You've thought this through a kind of alarming amount, haven't you? 
I just really am invested in the idea that Banshee and Moira have a creative and vibrant sex life. I mean, I'm 35. I'm starting to get older. There's some of the older characters. Like, I don't want to get all boring and stuff as I age, so they're kind of like a, a positive example. I, I hope to emulate them, except without having my jaw wired shut and without getting killed pointlessly by Mystique later, or in the case of the other one, a, a plane that blew up. Yeah, no, I mean, in, in, in Final Fantasy terms, you're actually already, probably already dead, in fact. Yeah, like Oren from FF10, wasn't he 35 or something? He's like 28. Oh, maybe if I just wear a real high collar and take my shirt off one of my shoulders, I can be that cool. I don't know. Aging is weird, but... Now, Xavier, as he bursts in, assures them that he doesn't do this, which seems really suspicious to me. But I've actually just kind of de facto assumed, and I realized it when I was reading this since the X-Men started, that Xavier not only eavesdrops on everyone's sex life, but then makes passive-aggressive comments about them like during meetings and at breakfast the next day. Man, Professor Xavier is a jerk. Well, the dudes have almost calmed Moira down until Rogue gets blown through the wall by an energized basketball from Gambit as the game seems to have degraded even more. I gotta say, Cyclops is here. He's seeing this. He's just come back to the team for the first time after being on X-Factor for so long. I feel like he's gotta remember X-Factor well enough to be super proud of this new person-shaped door in the wall. The thing is, X-Factor usually, not always, but usually busted holes in things when they were actually trying to get to the other side of the wall. Oh, so you're saying that maybe Cyclops is proud of Gambit more than he's proud of Rogue in this case? I don't think this Cyclops is proud of anyone because he's basically animated series Cyclops right now. So he is he is in general against fun or positive reinforcement. Well, either way, as Rogue gets blown through the brick wall, while her costume remains intact, her civilian tank top overshirt that she was wearing it gets shredded by the blast. So take a very small drink. But you're going to want to pace yourself because... There's a lot of this, this arc. Elsewhere, Andreas and Andreas Strucker, that's right, Fenris, are meeting with Matsuo Tsuriyaba about using Omega Red to win the Upstarts competition and become immortal, which is the prize of the week, you know, this time around. Every time these two show up, they get more ostentatious and trashy, and I really love it. Right? I mean... Andrea Fenris, the female member of the twins, she's wearing like this keyhole cutout pot pink mini dress with thigh-high open-toed boots and chain-link garters and an enormous fur-collared metal pauldroned trench coat. These are not half-fashion measures we're seeing here. Also, I am fairly sure that I have seen every garment that Andreas wears in this comic at Hot Topic in the late 1990s. Probably. Now, Matsuo and Fenris have actually met before. We saw them meet way back in Uncanny X-Men number 268, which we talked about in episode 180 of our show. That was the one with Black Widow and Captain America and all that stuff. I always feel like the upstarts were a concept that had been come up with after Claremont was already gone, but no, the seeds were being sown way back then. I mean, is it really that much of a stretch? The Struckers have been hunting humans for sport, like, since they were toddlers. True, true, but doing so for the upstart prize, you know, that's a new thing. Back at the X-Mansion, Gambit comes in through the hole in the wall, sees Rogue as his prize, since he's, I guess, won this fucked up basketball game, and is about to kiss her semi-conscious form. When she punches him in the face... Go rogue. No! Keep your slimy paws off of me, Gambit! You know I can't make flesh-to-flesh -flesh contact with you without draining all your powers anyway! To which Gambit responds, because he's the worst. Perhaps, but don't nobody know how Gambit loves a challenge. God damn it, Gambit. 
Once again, I mean, I, I don't want, I don't think we should take drinks to all of the like improper non-consensual kissing in this era, no. but I don't know. Maybe we should just shake our heads sadly or something every time. Yeah, I think we can, we can facepalm ritualistically. There we go. So now we have our take a drink ritual and our ritualistic facepalms. We also find out why Moira's been having all these nightmares. Apparently, she has been hanging out in a room wallpapered with view screens with pictures of every supervillain, including her kid. Yeah, Proteus is there, Magneto's there. So Banshee goes into this room to comfort her as best he can. He's still got the telepathic link that Xavier instituted. And it's not very successful because she still really hates herself. She still wants to leave the X-Mansion. She wants to leave alone. And that's exactly what she does without Banshee, who she leaves there. I feel really bad for everyone. I mean, the thing is, like, Yes, she maybe did th something unethical to Magneto when he was de-aged. We talked about that in our, our winter special. But it turned out it didn't really work. And when she did the same thing to the X-Men, it only worked very, very briefly. Like, I feel like she's being way too hard on herself here. Now, she is wildly unethical. And taking some alone time to consider her life choices is probably not a bad move. But, you know, she's also fairly ineffectively unethical at this point. So she, she, can, she doesn't really need to be racked with guilt over it. Well, as this sad scene ends, a happier one begins. Except for the fact that Gambit's sort of a slime ball. Gambit is on his motorcycle and dressed in this leather jacket and headband and, of course, his metal boots. That's his date outfit because he's gotten Rogue to agree to go out with him. And when she shows up in this amazing, like, red vinyl and red lace dress with a matching headband, I, I love it. The 90s excess doesn't always work, but when it comes to either Gambit or Rogue's fashion sense, I am on fucking board. I'm actually really upset about Rogue's outfit here. Really? It looks so great! Look at, so she's wearing basically a very long dress with a gathered skirt to ride on a motorcycle. That's really unsafe. You know, I didn't think about it that way. Very good point. It's a good thing she's nigh invulnerable. Well, but Gambit's not. And the issues that that dress could very easily cause would be ones that wouldn't just affect her. Yeah, but I don't really mind seeing Gambit get his ass kicked. Yeah, okay, that's fair. Well, as they're about to leave, Wolverine, Jubilee, Beast, and Beast's Jeep decide to tag along as chaperones. Oh my god, this is amazing. This is maybe the most epic cock block in history. I mean, okay, on the one hand, it's sort of disrespectful to Rogue because she is super badass and can take care of herself. On the other hand, Gambit, you know. I sort of assumed that Rogue was in on it. That may be true. Okay, I choose to believe that. Because she doesn't seem to have any problem with it. Like, Gambit is, is shocked and dismayed, but Rogue's just basically like, hell yeah, the more the merrier. I like this plan. Well, they all drive slash ride away, but before they can get to any date locations, they're attacked by these Shadowrun-looking 90s versions of the Hand Ninjas. And, you know, the motorcycle crashes and the Jeep is blown up, and all their fancy clothing is ruined. Aw. Thankfully, Wolverine was wearing his full uniform underneath, so, you know, at least that's the case. So they kill a whole lot of ninjas, and I kind of feel like the whole X-Men don't kill rule doesn't really apply to the hand, because they're all just, like, zombie ninjas anyway, basically. 
Yeah, in general, the hand tend to be exceptions to the don't kill rule because either they can be brought back or they're already dead. Yeah, so just slice them up as you will, even though you have an impressionable teenager in the form of Jubilee right there. But suddenly, all the heroes get super sick and weak as Omega Red shows up, now wearing the snazzy red and white action figure costume we talked about, and with these ribbed wrist tentacles sticking out. Now, they're really long tentacles. Where does he keep them when they're retracted? I don't know. Maybe he's hollow or something? Around. I assume they telescope. Maybe. Yeah, that would that would make some sense. Well, Omega Red kicks the crap out of all the X-Men, and the ninjas dress up as paramedics and cart the mutants away, leading us into the meat of our story in X-Men number five, Blowback. Blowback, before we get into the story, I just want to give a momentary sh- shout out to the four inkers who worked on this issue. Your noble sacrifice is recognized. I think, well, I know we've talked about this in, in reviews, I don't know, if, I can't remember whether we've talked about this on the podcast. When you see this many inkers credited on a book, it's usually a fairly sure sign that the issue was running super, 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 super late. And with this arc, I totally believe that because it's only semi-coherent in places. Now, issue five begins beneath stately Xavier Manor, where Cerebro, which looks like the cockpit of the Millennium Falcon these days has detected a new fancy mutant less than five miles from the mansion. Everyone rushes in, including Psylocke, who has apparently been swimming laps in a very skimpy strapless bikini, which, again, kind of kills my suspension of disbelief. It's not that she's wearing the skimpy bikini. That's fine. It's that she claims she's been swimming laps in it. And so this leads me to wonder, British listeners, is the swimming laps mean something real different to you than it does to, to us in the States? Well, I'm not saying that this bathing suit is a good one to be swimming laps in because, yeah, that thing would just come right off. But to be fair, there is historical precedent. In the Mark Silvestri era, Betsy Braddock strips down to go swimming basically at every opportunity. Right. Again, it's not the swimsuit that I object to. It's the idea that she was wearing it to swim laps. Totally fair. If she was like, I was lounging or I was standing very still with perfect posture because that's really the only way this thing would stay on other than like high-powered glue... I'd believe that. I'd be entirely fine with that. It's entirely in keeping with her characterization. The swimsuit's fine. Just, just, yeah. It's maybe, oh, maybe she and Rogue like accidentally traded clothes. No, you couldn't swim laps in the ball gown either. Hmm. There are some problems here, but there's no time to focus on them because the X-Men hop into the Blackbird as this alert hits, realizing that this new mutant has manifested right around where the date group would have been. Do you know how expensive it is to fly a Blackbird? So expensive. It is so expensive. And they are taking it less than five miles. Like, guys, you could have just gotten a van. Oh, man, this is like when I'm really lazy and drive to the pizza place that's just down the street to pick up a takeout order. It's so much worse than that. (laughs) It's so much worse than that. The 90s. Inside the ambulances, the X-Men do a fairly good job of breaking out, although Rogue's fancy dress is completely destroyed in the process. So take that drink or finish the one you'd started. The Blackbird arrives with backup, but the ninjas reveal that they were never planning to get out alive anyway, and they just blow up the ambulances. Now, at this point, there's no sign of any of the mutants who were going to go on this ill-fated date, but Colossus does find Wolverine's discarded mask. Which Cyclops points out Wolverine wasn't wearing when he left. So is it a red herring? Is it dialogue compensating for a continuity error? Who knows? It's a mystery. It's also the wrong mask. It's the brown and orange one that Wolverine presumably tore up when he took off his shirt that one time in his own series. 
Maybe he's just been carrying it around with him intending to mend it. I do that sometimes. Yeah, that's legit. Now, Wolverine himself, meanwhile, is elsewhere fighting Omega Red in the snow. It's not real snow. The season didn't rapidly change. This is memory snow because Dr. Cornelius from the Weapon X series is working with Matsuo Tsuriyaba and the Struckers and their amazing outfits, which just keep getting better and better and better. Did you notice that Andrea's dress that she's wearing, that the boob window goes from a triangle pointing in one direction to a triangle pointing in the other direction from one panel to another? First of all, it's not a dress, it's a jumpsuit. And second, I did not notice that because I was too busy trying to figure out whether it was a dress or a jumpsuit. Okay, that's entirely legit. Now, Logan's stuck in memory land, like you mentioned, Jay, and we get more stuff about Logan's old secret agent days back when he worked with Sabretooth, and also apparently with a guy we haven't seen before, with a really improbable mask that looks like it would totally squish his nose and make him talk in a nasal voice. This guy is the infamous, debuted on a trading card, Maverick. These guys are working together to rescue a double agent, um, a woman who is is currently with the Russians but has has been spying on them, and they are all going to be working together to steal a carbonadium synthesizer, which I assume you can use to play carbonadium smooth jazz. <laughs> oh man, I'm like carbonadium wave. Um, you know, matter producer does some synth wave stuff. Maybe he knows about carbonadium wave. The next seventeen hours of carbonadium synthesizer solos are brought to you by. ZZ105, featuring nothing but smooth jazz and extended awkward silences. Previously on Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men. Well, anyway, outside of memory land, in the present, by which I mean 1992, Jay, you mentioned that Dr. Cornelius was here. Now, he, of course, was one of the three scientists that did the Weapon X Project procedure on Logan, along with the professor and Carol Hines. Those two showed up in Wolverine's own series. Now we're three for three. I guess they all made it out of that terrifying but ambiguous ending of Weapon X. What are the odds? Apparently pretty high. I gotta say, though, these are characters who I think have less punch to them with every repetitive appearance. For me, them dying dramatically actually makes Wolverine's story work better. So given the fact that Dr. Cornelius will even somehow come back from this story when he dies, I don't know, they just don't work for me that way. I have said this before, I will say it again. In fact, I'll probably say it again pretty much every time we get hooks to Wolverine's backstory. I am strongly of the opinion that the less about Wolverine's backstory is confirmed, the better it works. Tell all the stories you want, have them contradict as much as you want, but only rarely have characters turn up from them and almost never have them turn up in ways or contexts that confirm stuff. Having Wolverine be and know that he is a perpetually unreliable narrator, I think, makes him much, much more interesting and work much better as a character. And yeah, like you said, pull these guys out of their original context and they lose so much punch because they're not particularly, they're, they're neither interesting nor imposing villains. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely true. Speaking of the past, we jump straight from Dr. Cornelius's appearance to a flashback to the day before in which the comic makes an excessively and really unnecessarily labored attempt to connect the goings-on in Uncanny X-Men with a team meeting where a gold squad is in Hellfire Club formal wear and blue team is wearing uniforms, and it's kind of funny in a really odd couple way. And it's not, it's, it's really clear that they're trying to establish a, a connected timeline between the two books, but the result is more confusing than I think it would have been if they hadn't bothered trying to reconcile them scene to scene. And this is a really common pitfall that you see in continuity-heavy comics a lot, and that's basically detail-based continuity doesn't necessarily make for good or coherent storytelling. 
at best, you're going to get something that's weighted down with a lot of unnecessary exposition and details because you're going to be spending time trying to reconcile timelines that you should be spending telling a story. And at worst, you're going to get what happens here, which is making a relatively straightforward situation look more tangled than it actually is. Like, we really don't need to know exactly how it came to be that Professor X and Forge sat down to play chess in Uncanny X-Men number 282. You know, I think I have to disagree with you here. I agree that this is hard to do right. But for me, when you have two teams operating out of the same location, working for the same boss, and they're not going to be in each other's books very often— I kind of like that we at least get a brief nod to, oh, right, they're doing that other mission. That's why we have two teams. Whether it's successful or not, I think we could talk about that. But as a premise, I don't mind it at all. Right. I mean, I, I have no problem with having them intersect or having them reference what's going on in the other book. That's fine. Here, though, it seems like they're working way too hard to set up very specific intersections and data points. And it, it just, it feels like too much. Now, we also see some internal conflict. You mentioned that you're not sure why Jubilee's there. And Cyclops is with you on this point. Cyclops thinks accurately that Jubilee is way too young to be out in the field, but he is overruled by Professor X and Psylocke because Professor X is all about endangering teenagers and Psylocke is, is just really bad at any kind of safety-related precautions. That's true, but I actually really liked that even though they used to clash all the time back when they and Wolverine were sort of a three-person squad in the teamless days, that Psylocke has learned to really respect Jubilee. I thought that was a neat little nod. It is a neat little nod, although I, I wasn't sure, like, body language-wise, it kind of seems like maybe she's trying to get Jubilee killed. I think Psylocke just always looks that way when Jim Lee draws her. Okay, okay, that's fair. Well, back in the present day, before the flashback, it's Maverick, who we just saw in a flashback, but now he's in the present day. Timelines are a little weird here. Wait, do you mean before the flashback or after the events of the flashback? Um, after the events of the flashback and after the events of the other flashback. This is the most recent scene. See, this, this is why I object to doing the kind of thing that they just did there. Jay, did you ever see a movie called Dragon War? The subtitle was D-War. Have you seen it? It's Korean, I want to say. I did not. As I recall, we were going to watch that together, and you rented it while I was out of town. Oh, well, uh, sorry. Well, anyway, there's a flashback where uh, eventually they forget that there's a flashback, and they put another flashback in it. It's a terrible movie. You should maybe see it. That also happens in Batman Odyssey. And oh, speaking of unreliable um, memories, I assume you're watching The Prisoner? Uh, once I catch up on Gifted, that is the next series I'm going to start. Yes, I have the DVDs ready and waiting. All right. Anyway, so Maverick in the present day is monitoring all of these goings-on with Wolverine and Cornelius and Matsuo and everybody, and he calls into Central. This is going sour fast, Major. Logan doesn't know what the f**k's happening to him. I'm gonna remix this little party a bit. So yeah, this in the present day is Maverick's first actual appearance. We did, interestingly enough, see him, one of his alter egos, a dude named Morse in Wolverine number 48 a few months before this came out, but, you know whatever. So he enacts his plan. Maverick hits the lights, and Wolverine, who is still in and out of the past, manages nonetheless to break out and grab what I what appears to be, but will turn out not to be the carbonadium synthesizer. It's a canister anyway. Omega Red wants to engage, but Logan is able to escape by jumping out of a window, and luckily Maverick is there to help, as shortly thereafter are the X-Men. Maverick is unimpressed. He refers to Rogue, Psylocke, and Gambit as the junior squad and Beast and Cyclops as the big kids, which is kind of ridiculous because, like, Gambit is new, but Psylocke and Rogue have been around forever. Yeah, and Rogue is definitely the heaviest hitter on the team. Absolutely. I kind of wonder if that was just commentary from Byrne. Like, you know, he preferred the good old days. Either way, it's kind of a dick move. 
Well, that brings us to X-Men number six, farther still, my aforementioned Easter basket issue. Now, Byrne is gone as of this point. It turned out Marvel replaced him with Scott Lobdell on scripting without even telling Byrne. Byrne found out about this when he heard from a friend that that's what was going on. Wow. Extremely uncool. Yeah, Marvel made a lot of crappy decisions in this era. Now, Fabian Nicieza will soon take over as the ongoing writer, but we're going to get a bit of Lobdell before then. I wonder, you keep on talking about this as the Easter basket issue. Do you have like strong taste flashbacks? Like, do you, do you just automatically taste peeps when you read this? I was never a peeps kind of guy, but I gotta say most of the 90s for me is defined by sense memories of way too many Twizzlers and way too much Alice in Chains on the radio. Ah, oh, man. So remember um, drinking Dr. Pepper through Twizzlers at the movies? It was a great idea. Why don't we do that anymore? Okay, so I was at the dollar store a few weeks ago, and they now make, apparently or briefly made or something, Dr. Pepper flavored Twizzlers. But, oh man, what a marvel of efficiency. Yeah, it's, it's very weird. It's like a singularity, and they kind of taste like Dr. Pepper chapstick. It's always been a complaint of mine that chapstick smelled really good, but you couldn't eat it, or at least you shouldn't, so I need to find these. Yeah, you can live your dreams. They're also fairly good to drink bourbon through, which is what I did with the pack that I bought. Like, every sentence you're saying here, Jay, makes me more excited about finding these. I need to go out to a grocery store after we're done recording. This is what we should do for our hotel special at Emerald City. Twizzlers and bourbon. Okay, make a note. We gotta make this happen. But anyway, uh, let's go to, I don't know... Berlin. Why not Berlin? I mean, there's a hand base there, and that's where apparently everyone is being held. Cyclops, Beast, and Jubilee quip and punch and zap their way into this base, and are attacked by the Soviet super soldier himself, Omega freaking Red. This is where we learn about the nature of carbonadium, which is basically like shitty knockoff adamantium that's also fairly flexible. And yeah, that's, that's what his wrist tentacles are made of. And his powers have to do with those and pheromones he releases, which in combination contain his mutant death factor and sort of suck the ambient life out of the people around him. I imagine that, so he's, he's basically that guy who just walks into a party and everything goes kind of dead. Oh yeah, pretty much. Except, you know, with carbonadium also. Yeah, except you know, literally kind of dead. Elsewhere in the facility, the other half of the rescue team, Gambit, Rogue, and Psylocke, break in also. They're fighting lots of ninjas, and then they run into Fenris. Now, Andreas has grown his hair much longer, which prompts Gambit to say, Looky here, mes amis. Another bad guy with his hair pulled into a ponytail. Is there some dress code nobody tell me about? Dude, we just saw your ponytail. Why have you tucked it under your head sock? Are you ashamed? No, it's because he's a good guy now. Oh, okay, so only bad guys have their ponytails exposed is what you're saying. Good guys are nice and modest. Again, Gambit is specific here that he's, he, the trend he's noticing is bad guys with ponytails, not ponytails in general. Ah, this is why Jay and Miles explain the X-Men exists. See, Gambit's hair and headwear is actually an elaborate metaphor for his internal moral compass. At this point, he's still not entirely broken from his past as a rogue and an erstwhile marauder, but he's trying to fit in with the X-Men, mostly through the pretense of having reformed and, and the concealment of his past, thus the headstock with his ponytail tucked into it. I 100% buy that. Well, Matsuo Tsuriyaba suddenly shows up out of nowhere... And Psylocke psychic knifes all of her allies because apparently when Matsuo did his sort of semi-objectionable, uncomfortable racial stuff to her, he implanted some post-hypnotic suggestion. Now he controls her and she's fighting her allies. What do you mean semi-objectionable? Like, 
That was non-consensual body swapping. There's nothing okay about that. Oh, I just meant the idea of using that as a story, given the way it's handled. The story is also semi-objectionable, but the, the action of the body swap is entirely objectionable. Completely agreed. So things are going poorly for our heroes. Elsewhere, Maverick, who, as you said, who had rescued Wolverine after Wolverine jumped out of that 10-story building while still completely off his gourd, injects Logan with neuroapinephrine. Now, I looked into this. I majored in psychology. It's been a very long time, but I was always fascinated. I assume that neuroapinephrine is supposed to be norepinephrine, also known in the UK as noradrenaline, which is a monoamine slash catecholamine neurotransmitter. It's similar but not identical to epinephrine, so essentially what Maverick is doing is injecting Logan with a very fancy EpiPen. Well, with epinephrine, which is used to treat shock in general because it's a vasoconstrictor. I just think it's funny to have it be a fancy EpiPen, personally. Well, this pain and, you know, neurotransmitter reference flashes Logan back to his Team X days. That was the sort of CIA black ops team he was on, well, black and yellow ops based on the costume. When they rescued this double agent lady and were escaping from Omega Red, the flashback now continues and we see that Sabretooth shoots the lady just to buy them some time and they all dive out of a window to escape Omega Red. They survive, which makes Sabretooth think maybe some of them are mutants too. Uh, spoiler, yes. Yes, they are. What? Right? Now, between the cyber EpiPen and a flash from Psylocke, who of course still has a psychic bond with Wolverine from their team-up days... Psylocke gets taken over, and that and the EpiPen wake Wolverine up, and he freaks out. He does not remember this squish-nosed ally of his. So it's Maverick's turn now to have a flashback, this time to the aftermath of the mission, where Logan got mad at Sabretooth and quit, and Sabretooth vowed to, I believe, whop him someday. So, as these flashbacks are flying fast and furious, Maverick just sucker punches Logan because he needs Logan and the carbonadium synthesizer that the mission was going after. He thinks Logan might know where it is. So it's not in the canister, then? No, those apparently were some healing cells that Wolverine took. It seems like John Byrne was just trying to give a quick explanation and then distract us from thinking about it anymore. He literally found a Mega Man power-up. Yes. Yes, he did. Oh my god. As Maverick and the semi-conscious Logan attempt to escape, Logan sees on a security cam that Sabretooth, the other Flashback member, has just shown up in the present in a tuxedo, a fur coat, and a pink polka-dotted dress shirt. He is snazzy. Okay, Sabretooth is terrible in a lot of ways, but goddamn does he know how to rock some formal wear. Right? And he's accompanied by a new character named Birdie. She has a telepathic sidekick he has, and she has this kind of aerobics instructor slash bellhop aesthetic going on. I can't describe it any other way. I mainly remember her, A, from the Sabretooth miniseries where she was a big deal, and B, from X-Men vs. Street Fighter, the video game where she was part of one of Sabretooth's moves. Is Birdie a name or a code name? And if it's a code name, is there a type of bird that this ensemble is supposed to signify? Yeah, I mean, the kind that works as a bellhop and teaches aerobics on the side. That kind. Ah, the great blue heron. Yeah, obviously. Well, Sabretooth is here to meet up with Matsuo, Fenris, and Dr. Cornelius in front of the captured X-Men. I really like all the reactions here because Sabretooth has history with a lot of people. Psylocke, of course, even though she's in control of Matsuo, she still hates Sabretooth ever since that mutant massacre storyline. It's a nice callback. It's also the first place where we get a hint at what's going to be one of the most critical elements of Gambit's backstory. Because Sabretooth knows him. 
he doesn't just recognize Gambit. He knows Gambit's real name. I think this might be the first time that we actually see it used in the comic. It is. I mean, Sabretooth's no leprechaun, but, you know, whatever. Aren't you a little tall for a leprechaun? <laughs> you came in that thing? You're braver than I thought. And Sabretooth asks, you know, if, if Gambit's running a scam on the X-Men. This is a reference to what we'll eventually find out was Gambit's role in the Mutant Massacre. But that's not for a very, very long time. For now, Sabretooth and Psylocke go off to find Wolverine and Maverick because everybody wants this carbonadium synthesizer that Logan may or may not know the location of. Sabretooth changes into his new 90s costume, which is this sort of two-toned, head-socked, gloves-over-his-claws kind of look, which I really dig. It's the one from the cartoon. I think it looks pretty cool. My favorite Sabretooth is still um, X-Men Evolution Sabretooth, who is inexplicably intensely anime. He totally is, right? Well, Maverick realizes that he's not going to be able to take these two on his own and unhandcuffs Logan. There's a big fight, which Sabretooth and Psylocke easily win, bringing their quarry back to the gathered bad guys and imprisoned good guys, leading us into the final issue, X-Men number seven, inside, ellipsis, out. Before we talk about this issue, I want to go on a tangent because we start with, with Wolverine restrained and he's restrained in those things everyone gets restrained in in the 90s, those big metal cylinders that people they stick people's hands and feet into. And I want to know how those work and what's inside them and also why Wolverine's calves appear to have enlarged to fit the way too big holes in what I think is a coloring error but looks really unsettling. Um, theory one, they somehow suppress the mutant's power so they can't escape. Theory two, they're filled with little feathers and they're just tickling their feet and making them too distracted to escape. That wouldn't keep them in, though. Like, I sort of assumed in my head, just based on the way he's restrained in them, that they work like those finger cuffs where they, they've just got, like, mesh or something on the inside, and if you pull, they get tighter. Oh, man. Now I'm thinking of chasing Amy. But regardless, the current plan that the bad guys have is to get the location of the sea synthesizer out of Wolverine's brain. Because why have a conversation when you could improbably tap into someone's probably fake memories? I mean, this is Wolverine. A, he wouldn't answer honestly, and B, every chance you can take to get into his brain, you probably should because there's a flashback waiting. Now, while Cornelius and company are hacking into Wolverine's brain, metaphorically computer hacking, um, Sabretooth has Maverick prisoner, but something is off. Sabretooth just keeps on repeating the same phrase over and over and over. Nobody told me the kid was out of sorts. Practically keeled over before I got the chance to bruise him. So that's kind of suspicious, but I'm sure it won't turn into anything else. Matsuo's using this weird face mask on Wolverine that'll let him monitor the memories as they occur, but it'll probably kill Wolverine in the process. Matsuo, surprisingly, is unconcerned. Now, what Matsuo learns with his weird face thing, it looks a little Ant-Man-y, I don't know. It's odd and sort of silly, but it, it is apparently effective because he is able to find out that in fact, Wolverine ditched this, the carbonadium synthesizer with Janice's corpse. Janice was the double agent whom Sabretooth killed, and it is now buried with her. That seems like a bad way to keep something secret, but eh, what can you do? Once he's got that info, Matsuo decides Wolverine's not worth keeping around and tells Cornelius to just go ahead and, and end him. And I kind of like that Dr. Cornelius still has the same semi-conscience that he had back in the Weapon X series. He's preparing to kill Logan, and the captions tell us... He was there in the beginning, when a handful of scientists destroyed a man named Logan and replaced him with a killing machine named Wolverine. In a perverse sort of way, the doctor believes that by killing Wolverine, he's somehow making amends. 
I always found Cornelius really interesting. I mean, less so with each successive appearance, but even so. But this is Psylocke's cue to stop faking being brainwashed, because of course she's tougher than that, and to attack Omega Red, and I love the way their duel goes. Right. Not only was Psylocke faking being brainwashed, she has, in fact, been in Omega Red's head in this entire time. And she's been playing him. He only thinks he's been using his powers on the X-Men. He, in fact, hasn't been absorbing any energy. And he's actually growing weaker and weaker. She's just prevented him from noticing. That is both a really cool use of telepathy and the kind of trick you can't bring out very often because otherwise your character becomes essentially omnipotent. Which Psylocke effectively is at this point. She is an incredibly powerful and a fairly unscrupulous telepath, which is something that's going to get explored extensively and, and be a pretty significant part of the development of her character from here on. Yeah, totally. So Maverick, in for his part, quips his way out of custody and frolics off to find the X-Men, but he gets re-caught by Sabretooth, who Psylocke had been mind-controlling, but as soon as she's knocked out, Sabretooth tries to murder Maverick. Fortunately, they've just gotten to the X-Men, and as it turns out, the X-Men were apparently perfectly capable of breaking themselves out, but just hadn't so far because... stuff. At which point we get a wonderful exchange, as Maverick, who's trying to figure out how to open the cyber shackles, says, I'm all ears. And Sabretooth delightfully replies, You're about to be all flowing entrails and exposed intestines, and your literal precious ex-buddies ain't gonna be able to lift a finger to help you. And Beast comments, A handful of bad finger puns comes to mind, but you'll forgive me if I ignore them all. I need to know what he was thinking of. Right? Also, kudos on just doing three characters in the same exchange. Well done, Jay. I mean, I'm lucky here. One of them is a character who, who has a, a capital V voice, and one of them has really distinct inflection. So Maverick's just kind of boring. <laughs> Except I still think he talks very nasally. Ah, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll do it next time, maybe. I don't know. Matsuo claims that with the X-Men indisposed and the Carbonadium Synthesizer in the hands of, well, the hand, nothing can stand in the bad guy's way. And Wolverine shows up and responds with a really great badass line. You mean to tell me? A mutant healing factor. 300 pounds of adamantium skeleton with claws. Countless hours of training in a danger room. And you got the nerve to call that nothing? I'm going to take this opportunity to once again say that this is why I think Christian Kane should play Wolverine if, if they recast him. Because that is such an Elliot Spencer line. Oh, man. That would be such good casting. Dude's getting old, though. I mean, I guess Wolverine is, too. I don't know. I assume he's sort of immortal. That seems likely. Yeah, despite all of his qualifications, Wolverine is still in rough shape, and he's still basically outmatched until the X-Men come to the rescue. And we get a wonderful, oft-reproduced, X-Men-looking-badass standing and confronting the bad guys scene. Cyclops starts with, I believe you people have something that belongs to us. To which Gambit adds, Short little fella. And Jubilee says, All adamantium and attitude? He's one of a kind. We'd like him back. Beast finishes with, And don't forget our resident psionic Japanese by way of Britain ninja warrior. You can imagine how hard they are to replace. I really like Scott Lobdell's dialogue sometimes. This is bad though, because we divided up the characters in terms of who tended to talk to each other most in the Bronze Age and early Claremont for the most part. And we've ended up with almost a gold team, blue team split. 
That's true, yeah. Maybe we'll have to reshuffle. Well, regardless, the X-Men agree to bow out from this conflict to avoid, like, an international incident, but Wolverine's not done. He's got business to tie up, and he's gonna leave to do it. And I gotta say, I, I complain about Cyclops of this era basically being animated series Cyclops, but he gets a few really genuinely good moments, and one of them is the conversation that he and Wolverine have as they're about to head off. Cyclops tells Wolverine that they're heading back, and Wolverine has reservations. Yeah, well, here's where it gets a little sticky, Psych. I got a few loose ends to tie up. I don't know that you're up to... I wasn't asking permission. And I'm not granting it. I am telling you to be careful. And to call us if you need a hand. <laughs> it's funny. Before joining this group, there wasn't a scrap I couldn't claw my way out of solo. That much ain't changed. But it's comforting to know I got friends. Family, even. Covering my back. Now and forever, Logan. Whether you want it or not. Man, there's the, there's the friendship that we're going to grow to eventually know and love. I mean, Cyclops and Wolverine, I'm a noted opponent of the psych gene Wolvie love triangle, but their antagonistic but respectful friendship is so good. So, I have mixed feelings about the love triangle, but one of my favorite things about Cyclops and Wolverine is that they are frequently rivals, they butt heads really frequently, and they also really, really deeply like and respect each other. And I think you know, that, that's an that's a aspect of their relationship that's common to a lot of my favorite X-Men runs. Agreed, yeah. Well, what Wolverine goes off to do, to cover it very quickly, is to beat the upstarts to Janice's grave, and then possibly murder them all, and definitely retrieve the carbonadium synthesizer, which he passes off to Maverick before disappearing into the mood lighting. Now, all the major characters survive, except for Dr. Cornelius, although he'll somehow be back years later. Matsuo does lose a hand in proper Star Wars fashion, so that's unfortunate. Wait, does he lose a hand or the hand? That's the thing, and there was that whole thing where he talked to the Mandarin way back about, like, you know, the hand and the fingers and all that stuff. It's sort of a theme with him, so I guess it was inevitable this would happen. I've just thought of so many puns I could make about fingers, but I will desist in favor of talking about the B-plot on this, um, this story arc, which is actually, I think, the more fun part of it. Like, the Omega Red stuff is okay, there are some good moments. This is delightful. It really is, and it's also going to set up not only the next storyline, or not the next, but a storyline coming up soon in this title, but the next unified annual story, because it's time to check in with, at first, Lila Shaney and Dazzler. Hell yeah, our two favorite rockers in one place. But first, I'd like to give you a quick and important update, which is that Lila Cheney is these days sporting a very rad asymmetrical bob, which by great coincidence is also the name of at least one supervillain. Right? And she's trying to catch a, an amnesiac Dazzler up on Dazzler's own past. Now, we last saw Dazzler in L.A. trying to do basically that to figure out who she used to be, and Lila in space when the X-Men retrieved Professor Xavier from all that Shi'ar scroll stuff. Dazzler has no memories of the X-Men or of her life up to this point. She jumped through the Siege Perilous and washed up completely amnesiac, basically in Lila's front yard. Lila wasn't there at the time, but Guido was. But they have reunited. And as they're discussing all of these things, Longshot, oh, I love Longshot, he shows up, pursued by Spiral and another dude, and flies through a window and romantically kisses the, unknown to him, amnesiac Dazzler. 
We last saw Longshot in Gateway's Dreamtime in Uncanny X-Men number 248, and there he was a ghost picking up body parts to try to make himself solid and whole, and ultimately wandered off to find himself more or less literally. He was, he did this before the X-Men went to the Siege Perilous, so he presumably has his memory at least somewhat intact, or at least the parts of it that haven't been recently wiped by Mojo. Usually when they meet up after a while, Dazzler's the one who remembers things, and Longshot isn't. Now, we've talked a lot about how shitty non-consensual kisses are, but I'll give it to Longshot this time. He didn't know, you know, mistakes are made. I hope he apologized. I assume he did. Yeah, as far as Longshot knows, when he comes in, this is his reunion with his romantic partner. There's no reason that he would know until she doesn't recognize him post-kiss that she doesn't remember him. Now, Lila Shaney does what she usually does when threats occur, which is to teleport herself and her friends the hell away. She doesn't mean to end up where she does, though, which is the Mojoverse. Oh, shit. Right in front of Mojo. Who is apparently expecting them and has an offer his soldiers can't refuse. Freedom! Freedom to the first gopher who brings me the head of an X-Man! A sick day if you just bring me a spleen! Wow. Mojo is like... A really, he's a jerk supervillain. I feel like there are, there are good supervillains. There are folks like Doctor Doom, and you assume that their minions either are non-sentient robots or have like really good insurance and leave policies. Like I, I assume Latveria has fantastic things like family medical leave and maternity leave and and, and all of that. Oh yeah, shorter work weeks, you know, uh, paid vacations. Yeah, but Mojo is terrible, and and Dazzler too is is unimpressed. You're telling me I gave up a promising singing career so I could slug it out with these freaks? This is crazy. I'm fighting for a life I don't even remember having lived. Thankfully, as the melee escalates, a random alien dude helps them escape. Um, who says that they have to come with him if they want to live, because this is the Mojoverse, and of course everything is based on television and movies from other dimensions, which I love. Dazzler does recognize this quote, which raises some questions about her siege perilous-induced um, amnesia, although it's possible, I guess, that she's seen Terminator 2 since landing at Lila's house. She's been there for a while. Or maybe it's just one of those things that's sort of indelible, you know? It just gets right into your marrow and no amount of amnesia can ever remove it. I mean, it's a pretty fun movie, you gotta admit. Wait, what does Sarah have to do with this? <laughs> anyway... They make it to the rebel base because apparently Longshot has been leading a rebellion against Mojo, which is awesome. Although maybe doesn't bode well because that's what he was doing and lost before the first time we met him way back in the day. That's pretty much what he does in repeat anytime he's not with the X-Men and it never really stops being fairly profoundly tragic. Seriously. And Dazzler's feeling some tragedy herself. She's lost and alone. She doesn't remember any of this, and now she's in this other horrible world. She didn't want any of this. I mean, most of the time, Dazzler doesn't want to be a superhero, period. But Longshot is still able, able to comfort her. They still do have a really wonderful dynamic, even with her not remembering their time together, and I like that. Now, yeah, we're going to see that dynamic persist and often be reversed, as you mentioned, with, with Dazzler being the one with the memories. But yeah, they are they are a good pair, and they are good comrades, Unfortunately, the strength of their love is not enough to actually carry off a revolution, which fails at Megalopolis. So this is canon now. So Megalopolis is actually in the Mojoverse. We know that. Right. It was that uh, media theory place that Anna Senti wrote about the New Mutant Summer special. I'm assuming this is a deliberate reference, and I kind of like it if it is. But Dazzler, even though the rebellion has fallen, 
she takes heart. We almost took him out with an army of dedicated soldiers and a couple of rusty X-Men. Maybe it's time to see how well he fares against a trio of soldiers and an army of X-Men. And we are going to come back to that later, big time. Now, this arc, so I agree the B-plot's a lot of fun, even if it's very brief. The Omega Red stuff, I don't know. I mean, it's kind of incoherent. Okay, it's very incoherent in places, but it does have so much energy to it. And that's a way that I'll absolutely stand up for the early 90s. That shit was never boring, even if you couldn't figure out what was going on. And I think that's one of the reasons that X-Men Volume 2, Number 6 worked so well as an Easter Basket comic, with very little context. I mean... I got my father's long box right around the same time, but when I read this comic, I was baffled, and yet I couldn't turn my eyes away from it. It was so engaging. It's cool, it's fun, and it's just incoherent enough that I feel like you could jump into it, follow along with the bits you saw, and not really feel like you were that much behind. Yeah, it's like tuning into a trashy but enjoyable action movie halfway through when you're th flipping through channels. It still totally works. On which note, you've got questions. In a very weird moment of meta, Peter Corbeau asks on Twitter, So the wizard got super speed from a transfusion of mongoose blood. What would happen to an actual human given that transfusion? Allergic reaction? Death? First of all, despite his, his name and avatar, I assume that this question is not coming from the actual super doctor astronaut Peter Corbeau, because the answer would fall at least vaguely under the umbrella of his expertise. So, you know, you want to be careful about whom you impersonate, I'm just going to say, I, I don't know you person tweeting as Peter Corbeau, but if the actual Peter Cor Corbeau shows up, whatever you start with him, he's going to win. <laughs> it's, it's not you. You're fine. You're, you're probably very competent, but just, just be careful, okay? So on to your question. Um, I learned two primary things while researching this question, and the first is that an awful lot of people on the internet really want to know what's going to happen if they give themselves injections of animal blood. I mean, I'm glad they're at least Googling for it before they actually do it. Kind of like they're asking a Quora and stuff, and it's, it's really worrisome. So, so I found some actual information in the middle of this mess of horror, um, which I, I, can, I confirmed um, with, with virologist, gene therapy expert, and friend of the podcast, Dr. L'Oreal Early, who was kind enough to walk me through some of what would actually happen if you injected mongoose blood. Basically... Xenotransfusion, which is what this is called, and which is, yes, a great name, is a really bad idea. It is about as bad an idea as you would expect. It will definitely not give you superpowers of any kind, and in sufficient volume, it will very definitely kill you quite dead. Now, Dr. Early also points out that even in small volumes, you should not inject yourself with mongoose blood or any other animal blood or any other random blood as a whole. Just, just don't do that because... Um, even, even a little of it will probably have some pretty significant negative effects, including severe immune reactions to foreign proteins and possible zoonotic infection, which is when a disease that's specific to one species turns out to be transferable to another. She also pointed out, very pertinently, speaking of zoonotic infections, that mongooses carry rabies, which is definitely transmissible in that way. So while you wouldn't get super speed, you might get, you know, sudden aversion to water and death. Basically, in summary... Don't inject yourself or anyone else with mongoose blood. Don't ask the internet for advice. The more you know. Jeremy Jones asks also on Twitter. So one day I'm brainstorming and I had the thought to change Warren Worthington's race to that of a black man and instantly I could see a very poignant story about freedom. 
if you could change one detail for a better story about a character, what would that be? Jay, I seem to recall you mentioning a fanfic that you thought was awesome that did exactly that, that had Warren be a black character, and you said it worked really well, right? Yes, it is called Class of 64. You can find it on Archive of Our Own. I'll link to it in the visual companion to this. It's a really interesting story. It's incredibly, incredibly, incredibly well-researched, and it's basically an attempt to reinvent and retell early X-Men stuff grounded very closely in the culture and politics of the early 1960s and geopolitical events of the same era. It's really cool. It's really interesting. And Warren in that story is still from a very wealthy family, but he's black. And that changes a lot about the character. And it changes a lot about the character in ways that make him, I think, at least in that era, much, much, much more interesting and give him a perspective that adds a lot more to the story as a whole. Um, the, the writer on this switches character viewpoints. And yeah, it's, it's, it's a really, really cool direction to take it and a really cool exploration of the character. As for your question, Jeremy, there were so many answers to this. I mean, I, I kind of wish we'd chosen this uh, question much earlier because I feel like we could have taken this in all sorts of directions. But the stuff we did come up with... One of the things I would change, Ed Pisker actually already did change in X-Men Grand Design, which is having Professor Xavier lose the use of his legs due to a situation more thematically interesting than boring old Lucifer. Now, as for my own ideas, one option, though this is really more for a team than for a character, is to keep it very clear that Megan of Excalibur is not a mutant. I always really loved the way that Excalibur blended mutant and mystical themes. It made the book unique, not just another X book. And so when the book went more traditionally X in the mid-90s and everybody involved was retcons to be more directly X-related, be it a mutant or whatever, I kind of feel like something was lost there. Now, as I recall, in the Captain Britain and MI-13 series, one of Megan's more recent appearances, they do some interesting stuff with the mystical aspect of that. So it works out, but even so. Another option let Kitty Pride come out. I mean, seriously. Or, I don't know, at least have her involved with somebody other than Colossus, who she's involved with right now in X-Men Gold. That book should be about how far she's come as a character. I mean, she's leading the team now, right? But by having her go back to her boyfriend from when she was a teenager, and not even her boyfriend for all that long, I think we kind of lose a lot of that progress. One thing I would keep the same rather than undoing is Jubilee being a vampire. It's bizarre, and it barely fits the feel of the X-Men, and it's one of the most interesting things that's ever happened with her, along with her becoming a mom. I mean, I love you anyway, current Generation X, but I always liked the vampire thing. I thought it worked out really well. What about you, Jay? Yeah. Oh, God, so much. I mean, in general, I feel really strongly that the more diverse and the more intersectional representation exists within the X-Men, the better. And... I don't have a specific go-to for this. And I, I'm assuming that when you're talking about this, Miles talked more about things that he'd have happen in current continuity. I'm thinking more in terms of just a, a complete scratch and reboot. I think especially looking at ways that the X-Men intersect with narratives about race is really, really important because the X-Men get used as a metaphor for a lot of things. And again, some fit more or less well. But... Race is an important one because it's one of the visible vectors along which we as a society, and specifically we as a fairly aggressively white supremacist society, which is not a point I'm going to argue, by the way, if you show up in the comments to tell me no, um, you're wrong. We tend, the, the ways that we, we code and interpret 
and the things and the fears and assumptions that we project as a culture onto black bodies, I think would intersect in really interesting and pivotal and important ways with what it means to be a mutant. There was actually a really cool um, arts series of portraits reimagining the X-Men along those lines deliberately and then looking at that specifically. I should say this is not something that I'm coming up with whole cloth. This is something that I'd, I'd seen. And I'll see if I can dig that up. I don't remember the names of the folks involved and it was a few years ago, but it was phenomenally cool. And if I can find it, it's 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 in the as mentioned. And again, just, just seeing more socioeconomic backgrounds, more religions, more, you know, a wider range of gender, a wider range of ability and disability that intersect and interact with mutation instead of just being replaced by it. Like that's, that's what I want. It's what I've always wanted. And I, I don't have a solid, this is a list of the specific things I would do, but the changes that I would make if I could, or the changes I'd ask someone else to make would pretty much all push things in that direction. Excellent answer. Now, Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is a fully listener-supported podcast, and some of those levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from assorted fictional characters and concepts. Let's start out, of course, with the angry Claremontian narrator. You thought you could leave the past behind, Hugh Owens, but to do that, you'd have to recognize your past before it could drag you down. The weight of your sins, the tentacles of your adversaries, and, of course the blood of Alex Holt. And uh, man, a lot of you have been requesting sexy thanks, and today those sexy thanks will be delivered, I believe, by Sexy Rogue. That swamp rat's about as trustworthy as a rattlesnake babysitting the bird's nest. Only reason I'm sticking around him is that my second mama Destiny told me he'd be written way less skeezy in the future. Fortunately, some people, like Rachel LeCompte and Kevin Carey, understand how enthusiastic consent can get a body going. We'll get a nice southern dinner as the sun goes down and talk interests and boundaries. And if that ain't where we are, no hard feelings. If it is, though, there's lots of options don't involve dangerous touch. This is 1992, after all, and VHS camcorders are getting real nice, sugar. Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon and produced by Matt Hunter. New episodes of our show come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions for every episode, and be sure to come see us at Emerald City Comic Con. Our show is totally listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and stay ad-free, which we really love to be, Check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, the Mutant Liberation Front takes on yet another X-Team. And X-Factor faces the Pantheon. But not in that order. 